Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely, so audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. I want to tell you about one of my favorite go-to food staples in my home. It is Avive Smoothies. Avive Smoothies are a three-step blender-free smoothie. Yes, blender-free. Each smoothie comes in its own frozen wheel with these little pods. And if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know that I'm absolutely obsessed with them. And you pop out these pods in your favorite mason jar or shaker. You add in your favorite liquid. So I add in oat milk or hot water if you are impatient like me. But you wait about 20 minutes if you're not going to do the hot water trick. And you end up shaking it afterwards and it turns into this beautiful smoothie that's so good, so tasty. Absolutely love it. The smoothies have no added sugar in them, no artificial flavors or preservatives. They are gluten-free. They are vegan. They are non-GMO. For those of you who care about that, they are also certified organic and there's free shipping. Free shipping. We love free shipping. I also have a link in the show notes today as well as a code for you. You can use Kenzie Brenna 30 to save on your purchase. They have a completely incredible customizable online smoothie subscription that's available on their website and it's commitment free. So good, but they're also available in over 3000 grocery stores across Canada and the US. I love them. I know you love them. If you end up trying them, please let me know which ones you try and which ones end up becoming your favorite. So drink up and enjoy. All right. Hello, Garrett. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you doing? Doing great. I'm so excited to chat with you today. I came across Fight the New Drug on Instagram um, about a month ago, and I was scrolling through. I have no idea how it came up. I don't know if someone shared it in their stories or if it if um, the profile came up in my own Explore feed, but I was going through and I really appreciated the, that in the bio, it said like, you know, nonpartisan, non-religious. It was like, you know, this secular take on porn. And I thought that was interesting because most of the, you know, sort of anti-porn, no touch like movements that I've seen have been kind of spiritual and a little bit religious and I'm an atheist. And so it kind of always like, you know, ruffles up my feathers a little bit and I feel a little bit resistant toward messages that have a spiritual or religious background to it. So I found Fight the New Drug on Instagram about a month ago and I started scrolling through and I was like, huh, this stuff is like really interesting. I appreciated the um, you know, some of the facts that you guys were putting up there. And then I checked out the website and I was like, wow, this is all laid out and it's, it seems legit. And I was like, I'm very intrigued. And this, some of this stuff is not stuff that I've heard before. And so that's when I reached out to you guys. And I'm so happy that you guys agreed to come on today and, and chat with me about, you know, the effects of porn and what, what we can potentially do about it and, and all of that stuff. So I'd love to start off to hear a little bit about your story um, and how you got involved with Fight the New Drug and a little bit about your background. 
Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say, first of all, that we are also grateful for the opportunity to be here. Um, the fact that you heard about Fight the New Drug a month ago and we're on a podcast today shows how much of a hustler you are. My goodness, the turnaround's quick there. Um, I try, but yeah, I try. I, <laughs> we, uh, we at Fight the New Drug, yeah, just to state our mission statement before we kind of get into it, you kind of summed it up, but we are a non-religious and non-legislative uh, organization, and we exist to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using science, facts, and personal accounts. And again, we appreciate you and your listeners uh, being interested in this topic because, you know, we believe that this is a, a human right issue. And we believe that, again, that people should be able to make an educated decision on this. And it kind of runs counter to a lot of mainstream talk about pornography. And that's what originally got me interested in this movement. Uh, I, I've been working with Fight the New Drug since about 2016 and so it's been several year, years now and prior to learning about fight the new drug pornography was normalized in my world it was there was no one talking about the harmful effects and if they were it was in a you know like you said talking about the moral or the spiritual aspect and when i found fight the new drug it was kind of coincidence and it was refreshing to hear about the science facts and personal accounts. And at the time, I was consuming pornography, and I would state that I had an unhealthy relationship with pornography consumption. And from a young age, it escalated to an unhealthy habit and then towards what I would, what I would say is a compulsive behavior. And when my wife and I, when we got married, we didn't have discussions about open discussions about pornography consumption. And I know some, some couples do and some couples don't. And we were one of those couples who didn't. And that led to me consuming pornography in secret. And obviously you can imagine why that would be problematic or could be problematic. So to learn about fight the new drug, it was a cathartic experience for me because, because I was handling this compulsive behavior alone. And I felt like a lot of shame and that I was the only one to learn about some of these things. It was a, it was a cathartic experience. And I ended up wanting, I ended up telling the truth to my wife uh, about my porn consumption. And, you know, we've been married at that time. We'd been married about six years and uh, today we're, we've been married for about 11. And so we've, we've worked through it. And uh, through the process, I felt like, I wanted to do something to build awareness, to do my part, because I thought, again, there's not very many counter voices to the normalization of pornography. And so I ran a few marathons with, uh, to build awareness. And then I also rode my bicycle across the United States, dragging chains. Um, to, and I, the, the purpose of these projects were to, uh, again, build awareness and bring attention to fight the new drug so that other people can make an educated decision. So it's not in a judgmental way. It's more just, again, we want people to be able to make an educated decision. Mm -hmm. No, that totally makes sense. So you said that you had this like compulsive behavior with porn. Do you mean that sort of like it felt like you couldn't get away with it? Like almost like it was like when I, when I hear about that, it's almost like 
you feel like you don't have a choice in a way. Like you're like, I have to, I have to go do this. I have to go do this kind of thing. Yeah. I think that uh, one of the markers when it comes to addiction, like addiction experts will say that there's four markers for addiction. And one of them is what you're describing, which is, I think the technical term is hypofrontality, meaning that there's this battle between your reward center and your prefrontal cortex. And kind of like what you're saying, the reward center says, watch another episode. So if we're going to relate it to to media or to consuming Mm -hmm. a video, like let's say, for example, you jump on Netflix and you're watching this series and it's two in the morning and you're like, I can get one more episode in before before I have to go to sleep and go to work tomorrow. The reward center says, yeah, watch the other episode. And the prefrontal cortex, the goal is that a healthy prefrontal cortex is going to say, no, like you have work tomorrow, although you want to consume this, like let's wait until tomorrow and finish this. And a compulsive behavior or an addiction can get to the point where your prefrontal cortex, the brakes for the reward pathway, they no longer function properly. And therefore you feel like you cannot choose any other, any other thing. And this thing, they can Mm -hmm. happen with food consumption or with television or with uh, shopping or gambling or drug use, all these things. It's, it's very similar process that's happening in the brain. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And that prefrontal cortex is kind of like our wise inner adult. And it's like the part of the brain that helps us like be critical and like think twice about stuff and not be so yeah, impulsive. Exactly. And I don't think that a lot, I, I would say, you know, and I, I include, include myself in this that I would say like a lot of us need to kind of like work on that and like almost like exercise it a little bit more. Yeah, um, totally. I think one of the biggest helps when it comes to that, like how do we get through this, whether it's the topic of pornography consumption or any other thing, I think a big part of it is discussing it. Because if we don't discuss it, that can that's usually where the shame builds up. And then I think that does affect our ability to make a healthy decision and it can lead towards, you know, even more of that type of behavior. So mm, talking yeah. about it, like what you do, what you do is so healthy. Like your podcast and Mm -hmm. Uh, conversation that we're having is is a big part of helping ourselves make healthier decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think too that like whenever we start doing things in secret, like we know that they're that's just unhealthy in and of itself, even just relationally, like even just in in relationships that whenever we start doing something in secret, like even if it's serving a need or it's a coping mechanism, like we know that that just in and of itself is going to like create more friction and more of a disconnect. Um, I am, I am curious, like how did your wife take it when you decided to discuss, you know, what, like how much porn you were consuming? Was there something that you had to work on there or was it, uh, was it like, you know, very open and, and what calm and, and all of that? Well, I would say even when I was consuming porn behind her back or in secret while being married to her, I feel like we still had a great relationship. Uh, fortunately, I, I know that everyone's different and every relationship is different, but I feel like we did have that relationship. We were able to have great communication and discussions about various things, even though we couldn't about this topic. But when I finally told the truth, um, it's tough for me to talk to how she responded because it's her and her experience. And Mm. I don't really love talking to someone else's experience uh, because it usually lacks context and self-awareness. But I will say that when disclosing unwanted porn consumption or problematic porn consumption to a significant other, it's not 
easy to do. It's not easy to do the disclosing. And it's not also, it's also very challenging to be the one on the receiving end, meaning that you're receiving this news. Uh, because oftentimes, if, especially if it's done in secret, this news can be devastating to the individual uh, because they mm -hmm. thought they knew you, right? Mm -hmm. And you've held this secret from them. And so it can be very de devastating. And a lot of people refer to that devastation as betrayal trauma. Mm -hmm. And if you think about trauma, the word trauma, um, I mean, there's diagnoses in the DSM and the ICD, which are based on trauma alone. Like trauma can be very, very problematic and, and challenging to overcome. So I don't want to minimize what she had to go through. Um, mm -hmm. But I will say that she, that we were able to work it out through work. It was not easy, but through mm -hmm. communication and openness and genuineness and acceptance and empathy and all of those things, we, we were able to work it out. And we have a, we, I love my relationship with her today. Mm, yeah. Grew from it. And, uh, it, it eventually like within the work, it definitely makes you stronger and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, I would love to d start to discuss uh, like kind of like the basics of like what makes porn harm harmful. And I did want to, you know, uh, kind of like tell the listeners as well, just my own experience in relationships uh, with using porn. It, cause that's, I guess I kind of like, you know, through uh, looking at your website and, you know, reading some of the articles that you guys have written, it kind of like using that phrase, like using porn, it kind of does like put it into like more of an idea that it's like, it is a drug in a way kind of thing, you know? Um, but the ways that like, I've always entered into a relationship, assuming that both people, myself and my partner would 100% be what would, we would be watching porn at some point, either yeah. together or separate. And I wouldn't assume that they would not do that considering that I do that. But I remember at one point in one of my relationships, like it did feel almost like it was taking away something from my partner. And, and I was curious because the stuff that he was watching what, weren't things that, you know, it wasn't like I didn't look like that and we weren't having sex like that. And there was a bit of a disconnect there, but also I didn't yeah. want to like shame him or anything like that. And I didn't, so yeah. it, it was kind of like an undealt problem um, yeah. that you're just kind did of like you, left did, in left in the air. Oh, I was just going to say, did you guys end up talking about it or was it just left in the air? Um, we talked about it a little bit and we kind of like got to the place of, you know, you can watch if you're watching an action movie, you're watching it because it's like entertaining. You're not watching it because you actually want to like be Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible trying to save the world kind of thing. And yeah. you can watch things in porn that you're like, I'm okay with not experiencing this, but this is like entertaining or this is um, this is attractive to me in some way. So we kind right. of left it there. And I, yeah, I just, I didn't do any further research from it, but it's definitely been something that I've been reflecting on since reading some of the articles. Yeah. Well, I think that it'd be interesting to know, and obviously I'm not going to ask you like personal questions, but it'd be interesting to know where that relationship went and how it did affect it. Because first of all, relationships, every relationship's unique. And because we all have unique biology, we have unique experiences, grew up in different cultures, and then you're bringing people together in a relationship, and then they're supposed to create this healthy relationship with being different beings. So it's very challenging to do so. But I do want to talk to like your example of 
you know, comparing pornography consumption to a movie of Hollywood. Because are you familiar with the term supernormal stimulus? I am. Yeah. But if you could define it for our listeners, that would be good. Yeah. So a supernormal stimulus, it was that term was created or coined by Dr. Nicholas Timbergen. And Dr. Nicholas Timbergen, he put butterflies in. He was doing experiments to figure out what stimulates the brain, what stimulates the reward pathway. And he took these butterflies and he created these fake butterflies made of cardboard and the colors were brighter and the patterns were more elaborate, all these things that were exaggerated. So the key there is exaggeration. And then he stuck these butterflies amongst the males and the female butterflies. And he actually tricked the male butterflies into being attracted to that exaggerated version, even though it was cardboard. And by so doing the the male butterflies, you know, they they lost out on a relationship with a a true female butterfly in a Mm. sense. And so that is what a supernormal stimulus is. So the comparison of a movie, a Hollywood movie and pornography consumption, both can be labeled as a supernormal stimulus. The reason why your significant other sits down to watch whatever movie it is, is because there is entertainment there. And that same thing happens with pornography consumption. One of the problems that I see in your, you used your example during this discussion, so I'll stick to that example, is potentially that other significant other, if they engage with a supernormal stimulus that is is going to act that activates the, their reward pathway because they're unique, it might activate their reward pathway at a higher level than actual sex might. And I'm not saying that it's anything to do with the individual. It's that they're consuming. It's and it has nothing to do with their partner. It has everything to do with the the supernormal stimulus that they're consuming. And what can happen is because porn can be an escalating behavior. It can, and there are personal accounts showing that their partner can get aroused to a supernormal stimulus being pornography, and they can't get aroused with the real person. And again, I'm not assuming that's what happened with you. I'm just saying that's one of the potential problems with it. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. That's a, And thank you so much for defining that. I think that's so important. And it is kind of in a way, like it's almost similar to social media, like with that supernormal or hypernormal stimuli where you're on social media and you see bodies that are curated, that have been filtered, that have been edited so much to the point where you're like, but I don't look like that. My friends don't look like that, but I, I'm going to keep consuming it and I'm going to keep looking at it and I'm going to con- constantly try to like attain it in some way. Yeah. Um, and it's not good. And, and it's, we're consuming media just in general, not 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 even porn, but just media in general in a space that is designed to keep us on site long, lo- like longer, right. better, like more and more and more like these digital environments are created to kind of like suck our attention out. And I do yeah. think like, obviously, even on websites of porn, like you go on these websites and it's just like, millions of videos and for the last hundred thousand years we've only ever been living in tribes where we've only had each other and you know we've might have only had a couple of partners and then that's it and then you you died at age 20 and like hopefully you had a kid like that's like literally it and then now have you read the book sapiens uh i haven't no no yeah so sapiens it kind of talks to what you're saying like we used we grew up hunter gatherers we had our little tribes Mm -hmm. and now we have access to so much content and so many people that it can it can present problems yeah absolutely let's let's kind of dive into what are the main parts of porn that make it harmful because i know that there's going to be some listeners out there that are like but if you watch it like once a month 
and we'll go into like, you know, whether or not ethical porn exists, but kind of just like, let's just say someone's watching something where everyone got paid, there was consent, it was, you know, uh, even if it was something on OnlyFans and they're just like watching it like once a month, like what's so harmful about that? So I made a list of potential harmful effects of pornography, and I just kind of want to read through that list so that it is exhaustive. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. not exhaustive, but there's a lot of potential harmful effects, and I think it's important to cover them so that your listeners can Um, you know, make an educated decision and also just maybe do some self-reflection. If they're in a state where there is porn consumption and they are like debating if they should or shouldn't, or maybe they have like this sensation of there is unwanted porn consumption, but they're still consuming it or problematic porn consumption. Anyway, I'm just going to read through all of these. It says the list is that porn can be difficult to quit. It can be an escalating behavior. It can change the brain. It can uh, contribute to an unhealthy cycle of stress. It can emotionally and physically hurt a consumer's partner. It can normalize sexual objectification. It can hurt a consumer's sex life. It can negatively affect mental health and fuel loneliness. And then we can also get into the impacts on the world and societies. The porn industry, um, it profits off of non-consensual content. It can distort things like healthy sex, what healthy boundaries should look like, body image. Um, It can also promote sexual violence. It can fuel sex trafficking. And then one thing that's very unique about today is kind of like what we talked about with internet connection, that today, today's porn is unlike anything that any previous generation has, has experienced because of the ease of access and the privacy. So going back to your question of, uh, I think you mentioned OnlyFans, and if a consumer goes on and consumes pornography from OnlyFans, once a month, what's the harm in that? Is that basically what your question is? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're talking about OnlyFans, uh, we should talk about what it is, kind of define, again, for your listeners, if some of them aren't familiar with OnlyFans. OnlyFans is a user-generated website, and it's kind of like Instagram or Facebook, but there is a paywall involved, meaning that you have to pay for content, and the payments come in forms of tip, or in forms of subscription and usually range between, you know, like $5 to $50. Um, So when we're talking about that, I guess that one thing that I think about is Edward Thorndike's law of effect. Are you familiar with Edward Thorndike? No, no, no. Just so that your listeners are on the same page, Edward Thorndike is this famous psychologist and he has this theory it's called edward thorndike's law of effect and that what it means is what what it says is that if someone engages in a behavior and that behavior produces some type of reinforcement even if the reinforcement is a short-term gratification then it is likely for that behavior to be repeated in the future because of the short-term gratification or the reinforcement of whatever um whatever size or significance. So the reason why I say that's important is because there's a reason why people turn to pornography. uh, And there are nearly infinite reasons why someone turns to pornography. One of them might be to pacify themselves or to, you know, in boredom. And so I think one thing that I would ask a person who is consuming pornography once a month from OnlyFans, it would just be, I need context. I think that Mm -hmm. if, there's different levels. We're not saying, and the research doesn't say that uh, just because someone consumes pornography once 
or once a month that they are addicted, they're experiencing a compulsive behavior. Um, but there is potential for harmful effects. And so again, our goal to fight the new drug is for that person to be able to make an educated decision and know the risks. And then if they choose to consume pornography, then, you know, that's, that's their decision. We all have freedom of choice. I don't know mm -hmm. if that answers your question. No. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a, it's a great, uh, jumping point. Cause I think what, what, uh, what I'm hearing from it is like kind of similar, although of course it's so vastly different, but kind of similar to ingesting cannabis that there are going to be people who experience incredibly negative effects from cannabis and who cannabis might lead them into like different other, like it, it not, I mean, I hate this phrase, but it's kind of like a gateway drug in a way, like where it could lead them to like, you know, wanting a little bit more or, or whatever it is. But you know, there's like no problem. It's just, it's, I don't even know if that's like a correct comparison, but just in, in my head, what you're saying is like a person watching porn once a month or even like once a week or something like that. Sure. Like it might not actually have all of these detrimental effects on them, but it also might like you don't it like you said, like kind of it is sort of needs needing context and it is sort of individualized in a way. And it's just like you said about making an informed decision and knowing kind of like the facts of it, um, yeah. which you guys have laid out in on so many articles. Um, and it's I mean, it is. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that porn is, you know, it's like a hundred billion dollar industry. And with all of the free porn that we have on line, like we know that there's ethical problems with that. Just in, in just in that in general, regardless of even how it influences our brain or our relationships, just that just the, that fact alone, I think, is really startling. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting that you compared porn consumption to cannabis, um, because if we do compare those, one of them, you know, you have to it's behind the counter and then porn consumption is, you know, the easy access. One of them can become an expensive thing, and another one usually can be like a, a compulsive behavior with pornography consumption can be fueled free, technically speaking, although, although there are sites that require payment. And so there are lots of similarities. There are differences. According the, the difference that I wanted to point out that makes pornography very unique is that the ease of access and the privacy. And what I mean by that is the Mayo Clinic, which is a nonprofit here in the United States, they define what is compulsive sexual behavior and or unwanted porn consumption. And then they also define what are the risk factors for developing compulsive sexual behavior disorder. And the two risk factors that they list, at least the last time I looked at their site, it was ease of access and privacy. And then if we're looking at the development of a compulsive behavior, we have to look at going back to what you talked about. You talked about the prefrontal cortex being in, in charge of decision making to weigh out pros and cons and logically think through situations and scenarios. And if we go to kids, I think it's important we talk about kids when we're talking about this topic, because according to this research that was done by the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, and it was a pretty recent study, and they found that uh, over 50% of 11 to 13-year-olds had seen pornography at some point. And of that group, the over 60% of that group stumbled upon it accidentally. And so one of the questions you have to ask is, what are they consuming? What's, what are they stumbling upon? When we're talking about mainstream internet pornography, we're not talking about OnlyFans because they're not going to stumble upon OnlyFans. 
they're going to stumble. Usually it's going to, they're going to stumble because there's a paywall. So they're usually going to stumble upon a, a free tube site. And then you get into what are they consuming? What is the content that they're consuming? And why is that problematic? And then going back to the Mayo Clinic, what, is, what are the risk factors for developing compulsive sexual behavior disorder? It's ease of access and privacy. And so today, the generation today, the young people today are dealing with a pornography that's, it's, it's a situation that no generation before has dealt with. And there is a lot of uh, potential for problematic porn consumption because of the ease of access and the privacy. And then put that together with not as many conversations as should be having. I think a lot of people are having healthy conversations about uh, sexuality and pornography consumption, but maybe not as many as they sh as not as much or often as as should happen. So it's like a combination, a recipe for potential harm. Yeah, because I don't usually ever hear porn, to be honest, in like sort of sex positive spaces or even just being on panels with um, sex experts or anything like that. I never, ever, ever hear them talk about the detrimental effects of porn. I've never, ever. And that's not a slight at any of them. You know, I've worked with some of my friends, but I've never who are um, uh, sex therapists or uh, have or columnists um, who write about sex. Yeah. And I've been involved in the sex positive space for a while. And like, I have friends who do OnlyFans. And when I say I have friends do OnlyFans, like technically, yeah, you could be on OnlyFans showing people how to bake cupcakes. But like 99% of the time, you're on OnlyFans because you're producing your own type of porn, um, yeah. or at least content that isn't safe for work. Let's just say that. Right. Um, and yeah, and so I never hear this anywhere. Yeah. Like I, I truly never, ever hear it. One thing that makes it challenging for, first of all, I want to be clear that I am not a professional when it comes to academics. I am not a therapist. Um, but I think one thing that makes it challenging, one of the challenges that therapists have to navigate is unconditional positive regard. And I think that maybe some people are hesitant to talk to compulsive sexual behavior disorder as a negative thing because they have to maintain that unconditional positive regard. But I do want to say that there are many therapists and organizations speaking about the harmful effects of pornography. Are you familiar with the Gottman Institute? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gottman, Julie and John Gottman. Yeah. They are the lead experts when it comes to relationships. And several years ago, they came out with a statement on pornography and the statement that they used, I'm going to pull just a portion of the statement. It says that we are led to unconditionally conclude that for many reasons, pornography poses a serious threat to couple intimacy and relationship harmony. And the one thing that I want to add to the backside of that is that there's not a clause in there that says unless it's ethical porn. Mm. Right. So despite how porn is produced, there are again, pornography poses a serious threat to couple intimacy and relationship harmony. And that's by the lead experts when it comes to relationships. And going back to Edward Thorndike's law of effect, the fact that if something, if a behavior or a substance, if it produces some type of reinforcement, whether that reinforcement is positive or healthy or unhealthy, if it produces a positive reinforcement, it's very likely for that activity to be engaged in again. And I think that can happen with pornography consumption, even amongst couples, where there is a reinforcement, a short-term reinforcement, but I think that oftentimes couples aren't thinking about other uh, longer term. What are the consequences of consuming this either separately or together long term? Mm. 
Yeah, so well said. And in that, you did talk, you did, you did mention ethical porn, which we, I, I'm really curious to chat about that because I'm sure that that's piquing the interest of some listeners. You know, if like, let's say they're listening to all of all of this and they're saying and they're thinking like, okay, well, there's risks to you know consuming porn, but what about if I am just watching porn that's been made ethically? Um, you know, if I know that it's okay and if I know that everybody on set was okay or if it's just a single person, like does ethical porn, does that even contribute to this? Does that make it a little bit better? Can you define what you understand to be ethical porn? I, th- I think you've done a little bit of that explanation of like defining their, their consenting and that kind of thing. Can you define yeah. what you you think ethical porn would be? Yeah, great question. And this isn't something that um, you and I have rehearsed before the podcast. So people are like listening to this in like a very organic way. But I think when I think of ethical porn, I'm assuming that um, people, it's the big consent piece. So people are consenting. Um, there is either people are getting paid or a person is doing this on their own volition and it is being distributed with consent and that it isn't. People are sober when they're doing it, and I would I would assume that that's all in the realm of 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 it being yeah. ethical. I guess one there's everything needs context, and so you said that they'd be sober when they're doing mm. it, and I guess it'd be important to define sober because I think you're kind of referring to not under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Yeah, like if a, if a performer shows up and they consent to something, but they are they're they're high or they're drunk or whatnot, that's that that isn't full consent because they're not in their right state of mind. So I would, yeah. I would, yeah, that's why I slipped that one in there. Yeah. I think that it's also very possible for a person to be sober in regards to not under the influence of a drug or alcohol, but at the same time have a mental and a mental health issue. And many times that mental health issue is undiagnosed. And so they're giving consent with a you know, the undiagnosed, it's potentially true. And we speak with former performers who have had this experience where um, they consented. And at the time of consent, they did have undiagnosed mental challenges. And so it, again, it all comes down to context. And I think one of the points that I do want to state is that I would say, I think it's safe to say that every porn company, I don't want to use a blanket statement. I don't like the word every, but I'd say that mm-hmm. the the vast majority of porn companies today that participate in mainstream internet porn claim to be ethical. Mm-hmm. Name, if you can, like name a pornography company that doesn't claim to be ethical. Yeah, no, you wouldn't. Think, yeah, you wouldn't. No. Would <laughs> no, you wouldn't get investors. Yeah, for sure. Right? No. Yeah. And once once organizations start to become exposed for the problems. Now, that's not to say that there isn't porn being hosted on that site that was made with people who were consenting and that it was a healthier, like it actually looked like what healthy sex looks like mm-hmm. and all of those things. But that that company, once companies start to find out those problems, like, for example, the non-consensual stuff that does exist on these sites that per, that claim to be ethical, mm-hmm. then big companies start to pull start to realize they don't want to work with this you know quote unquote ethical porn company because there's too much liability and a recent example of that Pornhub they claim to be 
back in the day, they claimed to be ethical. Again, they couldn't get investors if they weren't claiming to be ethical. Mm-hmm. And if you look at recent examples, just in 2020, Nicholas Kristof, you mentioned that not many people are writing about the harmful effects of pornography or the things that are happening in the porn industry. Well, a recent example is with Nicholas Kristof. He's, uh, he wrote for the New York, he writes for the New York Times and he's an award-winning journalist. And he wrote an article back in 2020 titled The Children of Pornhub. And the reason why he wrote that expose is because he stumbled upon through his investigation, pornography that was non-consensual. And the way that the person who produced this pornography, the way that they determined or um, the way that they showed that this person was not conscious was they opened the eyelid and touched the person's eyeball to make sure that this person was unconscious, you know, to show that this person Mm -hmm. was unconscious. And this video was featured on Pornhub and Pornhub at one point were, you know, claiming they were ethical and they uh, were exposed in that way. Um, They were because of a big portion, because of the survivors of abuse and of sex trafficking on the site and also being big part because of Nicholas Kristof and the New York Times, they were exposed and big companies like Visa and MasterCard decided, man, this is a liability. Like we can't work with you anymore. And again, uh, once upon a time, that porn company claimed to be ethical. Now moving to OnlyFans, who also claims to be ethical, there's issues there. And some of the issues have been exposed already. And I am sure that there will be others exposed in the future. And one of the issues is their age verification process that they, the BBC did an investigation on OnlyFans and they had an under a minor pose as an adult and go on to OnlyFans through their age verification process and produce content. And you do have to have a bank account to collect on OnlyFans, but mm-hmm. a way a work around that is Venmo or Cash App. And so this minor, there are circumstances, situations where a minor has gone on, created an account on OnlyFans, and then collected money for their content through Venmo or Cash App. And OnlyFans takes 20% of all profit. So this ethical porn company has profited off of child sexual abuse material. Hmm. Have they come out to say anything about that? They've tried to change their age verification process. And if I'm remembering correctly, the last time that I looked into this investigation, the BBC followed up on after they had reinforced their age verification process. And a 17-year-old was able to create an account using her sister's ID that said Mm. that she was 26. So I think there's still holes in, in this process. And I'm not hating on creators of pornography i we at fight the new drug we encourage all of our fighters from around the world when i say fighters it's our followers from around the world to incorporate certain attributes and some of those attributes are accepting and understanding and real and loving and we are not judging anyone for what they choose to do and we are looking at the potential harms we are looking at the actual harms we are looking at what's happening and what potentially can happen And then we just encourage individuals to make an educated decision for themselves. So I just wanted to state that, um, you know, we're all individuals and there is no judgment in that area. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And let's say, um, because I guess the big question is, and I'm sure that you've had conversations even with your friends on this, like let's say someone is listening to you talk like in this podcast episode, but even just like interpersonally, you know, and they're listening to you and they're going, okay, okay, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. You know, um, it's hard to produce, a, you know, fully ethical porn, but let's say like you find someone, you know, that they're 35, they're doing their own thing on OnlyFans, they're by themselves, you like watching them and whatnot. Like is, the, I guess the question is like, have you ever been asked like, if I watch this like, you know, every once in a while, or I know that we kind of touched on this in the beginning too, but I feel like there's that bargaining phase, you know, when you get into like, when you're letting go of something and you're going through like the grief phase and you're like, but can I bargain this? Like, can I just yeah. try as hard as possible to see if I can do this in the most, in a way that like is not harmful to anybody I guess I know that we kind of touched on it at the beginning where, you know, it's like, of course, like, you know, some of the detrimental effects of porn, like, like you talked about that it leads to erectile dysfunction and that, you know, it um, increases problems with arousal and sexual performance. It increases problems with um, reaching an orgasm. Um, It decreases sexual satisfaction. It can increase sexual aggression. Um, and whatnot. Not everybody's going to experience that. But I could even say just like from myself that I know that the more porn that I watch, the harder that it is to either be present with my partner or even just be present with myself because it is that hypernormal stimuli. Like it is kind of always like kind of like taking your brain away. But I just know that there's going to be a listener. I think maybe even that I'm doing it where I'm like trying to bargain where I'm just like, oh, no, but there is like you can. I swear, I promise I'm going to try to figure out a way where I can do this where everyone's happy. And I guess if there's no answer to that, because we kind of covered it, we did. We kind of covered it. I think that what I'm curious now is life after porn. Tell me about it. Um, Because people do rely on it and they do it it is almost like you have to like detox yourself from it and some people can't imagine what that's like you know living a life without watching this yeah so i want to answer both of your questions and i I think if i was understanding interpreting your question correctly i think you were kind of talking about neuroplasticity a little bit with the previous question like if there's this internal debate like what are the harms like if i'm just doing once a month And should I or shouldn't I? I think we do have to talk about neuroplasticity. And that's important for your listeners to learn about and for us to talk about. And then I honestly feel like you and I could like geek out on this stuff for so long (laughs) because neuroplasticity was like I was introduced to neuroplasticity from The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge back in 2018. And honestly, that book was formative. It like it 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 changed everything. It changed the way that I looked at my trauma, my mental health, who I was, everything. And it just, it, it is a concept that made me feel more free as a person and made me feel less like I was embedded in the bad stuff, you know, like, oh, change Mm -hmm. is so possible, even in like the most difficult ways. Um, So anyways, continue. Yeah. And then, so the other part of your question was like, what if people are consuming pornography currently and they're like wanting to stop but aren't sure if they can actually stop or what would life look like without pornography. And I think really both of those questions have to do with neuroplasticity, kind of like you were talking to. And Norman Doidge, I love that you talked about Norman Doidge in that book, Brain That Changes Itself, because I've also read that book. And actually, one of the quotes that I wanted to talk to is from 
Dr. Norman Deutsch, and who is the lead expert um, on neuroplasticity. So I'm sure that's why that that came up uh, during this conversation. But he, in one of the quotes, he says, he says, sexual tastes are molded by an individual's experience and their culture. These tastes are acquired and then wired into the brain. We are unable to to distinguish our second nature from our original nature because our neuroplastic brains once rewired develop a new nature every bit as biological as the original. And it's kind of a long quote, but basically it's saying that sexual tastes are molded by an individual's experience in their culture. So there are risks to consuming pornography and it can, it doesn't always, it can change behavior. It can influence behavior and that's not going to happen with every porn consumer, but it does happen. Have you watched Euphoria? that show on HBO? No, no, not yet. Okay. So Euphoria, one of the first episodes, maybe the first, I can't remember. It's been a while since I watched it, but one of the first episodes, there's a scene where there's this guy and a girl and they're, they're getting physically intimate and they're, you can tell that it's progressing towards sex and the guy reaches up and grabs and starts to choke the girl. And in this scene in Euphoria that stops for a second to show how this individual, this teen, this young person got to that point where he wanted to reach up and choke and strangle that girl. And it, the on Euphoria, it, shot, it shows videos popping. It looks like free tube sites mm. being populated and it shows girls being strangulated or strangled. And... So it talks, again, going back to neuroplasticity and Dr. Norman Doidge, everything that we do on the daily and on the hourly affects our likes, our dislikes, and our preferences. Pornography is no exception to that rule. And so a person, especially a young person, if they go to a free tube site and they get thrown in front of them, strangulation, then going back to Dr. Norman Doidge's quote, sexual tastes are molded by an individual's experience and their culture. Consuming pornography is an experience. So according to Dr. Norman Deutsch, that could influence that person's sexual taste. And I think that that is problematic. And mm -hmm. I think that it's something that consumers should be aware of. It's mm -hmm. almost like, you know, when person, a person goes and purchases cigarettes and it's behind the counter, they purchase it. What's on the label of the cigarette? It says a warning like this is cigarettes cause cancer. And I think that. If we were talking about ethical porn, one portion of defining what is ethical porn, I think that the producer and the company would have to educate the consumer that there are potential negative consequences mm. so that the consumer can make an educated decision. Like what is ethical porn? I think, again, that the fact that the consumer can make an educated decision is a very important part of what is ethical pornography. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Big time. And then going back to your other question of what if a consumer is consuming it and maybe there is a little bit of like unwanted porn consumption, but they don't know if they want to actually not consume it. I think that the answer is pretty simple. And the answer is you have to try it out. Like if there is interest in not consuming pornography, then you need to try that so that you can experience the opposite. Yeah, I'm doing an experiment right now with a friend of mine and we're both not watching porn for an entire month. And yeah. it's interesting because what I appreciate about Fight the New Drug is that you guys are not anti-sex, at least from what I've read, which is like really important because I do think right. that, you know, sex is 
is so stigmatized and we're going on, you know, 2000 years of like religious sexual oppression. And we've really, really disconnected ourselves from just sex in general. And that's why I kind of think that also why porn can be so, um, we can feel so shameful. And then at the same time, it's a hundred billion dollar industry. Like, you know, you kind of have, it lives in this paradox where Mm -hmm. we all want it, but at the same time it's, we're not doing it in like the healthiest way and whatnot. And so Mm -hmm. it is important for me at least to just say, and I don't know what your stance is on this or really what fight the new drug stance on this is, but I, I like do encourage people to have a healthy sexual relationship with themselves and with their partner or partners. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that that includes porn. And I think that, you know, this, this month of me being like porn free and whatnot, um, it is like a little bit of a detox. It is. And it is really interesting because when you start like thinking about, um, let's say you're flirting with somebody and you're starting to think about them, like maybe sexually or erotically or whatever it is, it's so easy to think like, okay, well now I'm going to turn on porn and I'm going to, you disconnect yourself from that thought. Like you, it's almost like this, like, it's a it for me anyways and i'm not going to speak that this is everybody because it's right. definitely not but um it is this way of like disembodying in a way you know like you kind of just live almost like neck up in in a weird way like you just it just i don't know it just like lives in your brain instead of like you kind of like staying with your imagination like that's harder yeah. that's much mm-hmm. much much harder to stay in your imagination and to stay in like your body and your head and like what you're feeling than to like yeah. turn on porn and then to get stimulated from that right it's almost like everything in life requires self-awareness no matter what you're doing like <laughs> yeah. if you want to like yeah. the healthiest of us all that person usually is pretty self-aware and yeah. i think that pornography is one of the one of the distractions that can get in the way but we at fight the new drug we are pro healthy sex and we don't define what healthy sex is. It's We understand that everyone's different. And um, I do want to state one thing that's kind of interesting to me is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. And the bottom of that, the bottom layer of that pyramid is physiological needs, meaning like water, sleep, food, um, excretion. Like those things are things that we will die without, mm-hmm. you know, breathing. And some people debate whether sex should be included in the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And some people say it should be, and some people say it shouldn't be because technically we would survive without, like we won't survive very long without air. Mm-hmm. Um, but without sex, we can survive a little longer. So anyway, there's an ongoing debate if, if it should be included in that bottom level, but I won't make a statement on if it should or shouldn't, but I do want to talk about the next two levels up, which is safety needs and then belonging needs. Mm. So. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, those next two levels up of safety needs and then belonging needs, belonging needs, like we all, each of us need to feel like we belong to something to, and, and that's very important for our health. And I think that pornography is a thing that doesn't reciprocate that need. I think a person turns to pornography Mm. and they, going back to edward thorndike's law of effect there is a reinforcement of some sort whether it's healthy or unhealthy and then they go back to it but they're not getting the belonging needs and oftentimes going back to one of the things that porn can one of the harmful effects potentially is that it can perpetuate loneliness and isolation and it's it can be very sad for a person to have to navigate that road by themselves and and deal with that loneliness 
Mm, yeah. And kind of like porn is like supplementing that for them instead of actually having connection with other people in a way. Um, yeah. Have you ever read Matthew Lieberman's book, Social? Nuh-uh. It's a, you'd you'd love it. I I definitely recommend. And in it, he talks about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and he argues that being social should actually be on that on the the bottom, oh, yeah. um, because oh, wow. our okay. desire to be social Ooh, like can sometimes trump. Like I I always apply it to I have a fairly big eating disorder community that follows me, um, who's in recovery, and um, you know there are people who won't eat for the desire to connect with other people and for the desire to be loved. And so we might abandon our needs of sleep or eating or even going to the washroom. If it's like, if you're with someone and you don't want to be embarrassed or something, you know, you, we yeah. kind of will put these social interactions above. Oh, that's interesting. We prioritize yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like this desire to be social and to connect is so hardwired and that's also what social media and just media in general taps into like that's that yeah. that that need for totally. for for connection um so that's very poignant and and totally completely on point um so here we are we've chatted about the harmful effects and you know what people can do um and you you guys on on your site have so many, so many resources for people and so many articles for people to read. I know that I've been reading up on them. Um, I really appreciate that Parker sent me some to kind of, you know, prep me for this, but also just like, it was just really valuable for myself just as an individual to read. Um, definitely challenged me in like really great ways. And now I'm doing this like porn free month. And That's so cool. I'll definitely have to like, you know, report back to the listeners of um, how that went. And I'm curious if where can people find you or find Fight the New Drug online? What's the best way for people to get in touch? Yeah, we are across all social media platforms, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, just everything is our handle is at Fight the New Drug. And we love to interact with those people who you know come to visit and consume con some, some content. The website, the, is, the domain is fightthenewdrug.org. We also have a cool documentary. I don't know if you've been able to watch it, but maybe you can consume it during your month off mm. of porn, not porn. But the website is uh, brainheartworld.org. I don't know if that's one of the resources that you've looked at, but no, brainheartworld.org is a it's a three part documentary, and it talks about how porn can affect the brain or the individual, the heart, meaning relationships, and also the world. And you can consume that free, um, you know, in the private of your in the privacy of your own home. So that's a great resource. Another great resource is a uh, it's a conversation blueprint. It's also a free resource. You go to ftnd.org forward slash blueprint, and it helps you navigate this conversation. If you're a parent or a caregiver or a significant other, or if you yourself have porn consumption, you're wanting to navigate this conversation, which can be a difficult conversation to navigate. This tool, the conversation blueprint, can help you navigate that um, in a healthy way so that you can you know, decide whatever is best for you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today, Garrett. Yeah, no, thanks for the opportunity. I just want to say thanks to you and your, uh, your community, because again, it's important to have conversations like this and you facilitate healthy conversations. And I commend you for that. I admire you for that. You seem like a really genuine and, and real person. So thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. 
Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.